0: Psalm 146, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul, I will praise the Lord as long as I live, I will sing praises to my God while I have my being, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation, when his breath departs, he returns to earth, on that very day his plans perish, blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to be back. Uh, Thank you so much to the elders and to Pastor Ben for inviting me. I have great admiration for this church. I have great admiration for your pastor um, he usually throws in a free invitation for me to baptize one of my children when I come. Uh, I graciously decline. Uh, this time I, I didn't uh, get that invitation. I didn't know I was a Baptist how to receive that. Uh, but it's, it's an honor either way to be here. And uh, thank you so much to all of you for singing uh, as if you believe uh, the words that you sing. So if you haven't already, please do open up your Bibles to Psalm 146. We're going to camp out there this morning. I'd love to bring a message to you entitled, Praise Our True Purpose. Praise Our True Purpose. Let's turn to the Lord with a word of prayer uh, as we turn to his word. Our Father in heaven, as we confessed earlier, our thoughts are often far too small of you. But I pray, Lord, now that as we turn to your word, you would open up our eyes to behold wondrous things about your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, Amen. At one point or another, almost everyone asks themselves or wrestles with life's biggest and most important question. What is the meaning of life? And if you haven't wrestled with it, if you haven't asked yourself that question, you should. We need to know what it is that we're all here for. What makes life meaningful? How do I know that my life has a purpose? What gives me a true sense of significance? What gives me comfort when I think about the legacy that I'm going to leave behind? The Westminster Shorter Catechism famously begins by asking this very question. In theology speak, it says, what is the chief end of man? I think in our language, it basically is asking what's our primary purpose? What were human beings made for? And this is the answer that it gives. Our primary purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, life is all about praise. We were made to worship. It's, life is about bringing God the maximum amount of glory, which also turns out to be the thing that brings me, myself, the, the greatest amount of satisfaction and pleasure. Now, I know I'm in a PCA church, so most of you have that question of the Shorter Catechism memorized, but we also have to acknowledge that maybe some today, uh, when they heard that answer, they wrestle with it and they're not sure that it provides the right one. But the intellectually honest among us have to at least acknowledge it as a possibility. It at least could be true. Many may have encountered the writings of the late and great novelist and writer David Foster Wallace. I've recently been digging into his life and his works a little bit, and despite the fact that he tragically took his own life, if you listen to him, if you read his, his novels, I think he understood a lot about the fleeting and passing nature of this world. He knew that there had to be more. And you may know that before committing suicide, he wrote these famous words. In the day to day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And I think we owe it to Wallace to acknowledge that it's at least possible that we are here to worship God, that we're here to praise the one, to use the words of Psalm 146 6, the one who made heaven and earth, the one who made the sea and all that is in them. And if it is true that we are here to glorify God and enjoy him forever, there may be no better place to turn for the resources we need to live out that purpose than Psalm 146. The last five Psalms in the Bible all begin and end with a call to praise the Lord. They all begin and end with hallelujah which at least suggests to us that we were created to praise the Lord. The Psalms, the book that exposes to us the full range of human emotion, the full range of human experience, ends with praise. Which points us to the fact that praise, in the end, is the purpose, the final thing that we were created for. But if we're honest, we spend our lives praising We spend our lives devoting ourselves to, uh, we we devote our time to lesser things. In one of C.S. Lewis's essays, he has a famous line where he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea. We were made for worship, but we settle for less. It's like knowing you were made to be a helicopter pilot, but you spend your life running around in a room with a paper airplane. It's like knowing that on Thanksgiving you're supposed to enjoy a feast around a table with your family. But instead, you spoil your appetite, driving through McDonald's by yourself. I wonder if you might consider how you personally fall into doing this. I likely don't have to tell you what your specific version of Lewis's mud pie is in your life. If Wallace is right, we're worshiping all the time. And if Lewis is right, we're worshiping things that can't satisfy us. And if we're willing to admit that we do this, might we be willing to turn the page to a season of our lives where we begin to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Why not turn the page to a chapter of our lives where we make Psalm 146 our own? Psalm 146 calls us in the first two verses to praise the Lord as long as we live. Praise the Lord as long as you live. It's saying there's no sleep mode on praise. There's no sacred, secular divide when it comes to worship. Praise is never out of season. One of the things the Protestant Reformation rediscovered was that all of life is worship, not just what we do inside the walls of a church. Changing diapers is worship. Paperwork is worship. Evangelism is worship. So we see the psalmist demonstrate this willful resolve to praise the Lord all the time. This doesn't mean that the psalmist is devoting himself to becoming a monk. But he vows, unlike, uh, not unlike a loving couple would on their wedding day, to love and praise the Lord until death do us part. But again, we can tend to fall into thinking, whether consciously or subconsciously, that worship, that praise is relegated only to those times during the musical portion of sunday morning worship services but praise according to psalm 146 is a full-time gig my old boss alistair Begg, used to say that dead people don't sing and for the psalmist to live is he equates the two it's to sing god's praises he lives to praise the lord So we find him modeling this persistent resolve to sing God's praises as long as he has breath in his lungs. And he gives us three reasons to do so. And the first reason is there in verses three to four. Namely, we praise the Lord as long as we live because he alone can save. He alone can save. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. This isn't a call that's unique to this section of the Bible. The Old Testament is packed with similar prohibitions. In another psalm, we're told that it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. In Jeremiah, the Lord says that the man who trusts in man is cursed, the one who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Well, things won't work out too well for him in the end. In Old Testament times, people pretty much had to de- decide between pledging their ultimate allegiance to the God who delivered his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt or to the governments and the pagan nations that surrounded them. In our times, Psalm 146.3 is essentially warning us not to put our trust in the influential and sources of help sources of entertainment, sources of pleasure that cannot ultimately save us, can't ultimately satisfy us. We ought not trust in people, places, and things that can't get us through the universal problem of death. I think for us in our culture, our temptation is to gather around us enough big names, enough degrees, enough job titles, enough zeros in our bank account, enough social media followers, We project our best selves through these platforms in order to ensure that we'll have a leg up on the competition when it comes to our careers or our relationships, which at least in part is to trust ourselves. We can convince ourselves that if we're surrounded by just the right influential people, we'll be okay. And in so doing, we confuse people with God. But human saviors, verse four, die. So how can dead saviors save us from death? There's this great account in the book of Acts where Paul and Barnabas, who were a couple of uh, Jesus apostles, they were ministering in a place called Lystra. And we're told that in that place there was this man sitting there who was crippled from birth and had never walked. And while Paul was preaching, he looked at that man And he told him, stand up on your feet. And right away he sprang up and walked. And what happens next is fascinating. Listen to how those who watched Paul do this respond. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices and said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Because of what they saw Paul do for that man, they concluded that he must have been a god. When the apostles heard of it, The text tells us they were outraged. They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men, just like you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Sound familiar? Right at the end there, he quoted from Psalm 146, 6, calling them not to put their trust in princes, but to turn instead to a living God, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. You may have read C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia and in the final, in the final volume in The Last Battle, you'll know that there's this ape who uh, befriends this donkey and they find this lion skin and, and the ape covers the, the donkey with the lion skin and they're able to deceive all of Narnia that he indeed is Aslan. And I think the job of the preacher, the job that you see Paul doing here, is to plead with the people uh, that to worship alone, the true Aslan, to follow the only true one that can save, the one who created Narnia, the one who created the heavens and the earth, to worship him alone. Paul says, I'm not the one who actually made that lame man walk. So please, redirect your praises to the one who did. We need to ask ourselves where we find ourselves directing our praises, where we put our trust, who or what we lean on in moments of vulnerability, what we think about in moments of boredom, what we turn to in moments of fear, because I think we can tend to fall into a similar temptation as the people of Lystra. Puritan Thomas Watson once wrote that to glorify God is to set God highest in our thoughts. What tier does the God who made the heavens and the earth rest on the shelves of your thoughts? We need to watch out. Because in a culture like ours, when we see certain athletes or actresses or certain preachers even, what they're able to do for us what we see ourselves doing for us we can either consciously or subconsciously put our trust in them we can elevate them in our thoughts above god we have to accept that if we make anything but god our god one of two things will happen we will either crush those things with our expectations of them or we will crush them with our limitations you have to admit that they, can't sim- they simply can't save us from the death that they too will once become subject to. I recently took my son fishing and I met a woman who, who was passing by who told us that she decided for herself that she was living to 124 years old. I so badly wanted to turn her to, to Psalm 146.3 and plead with her. Put not your trust in princes, in whom there is no salvation, including yourself. 21st century culture is fascinated with princes and heroes. Since 2008, I I read that the the Marvel uh, production company has produced 20 superhero movies. And we all know, some of us who've seen them, that not all superhero movies are created equal, but that wouldn't show in the box office. Hollywood has us figured out. We are wired to put our trust in princes. And we do this with the Bible too. Churches point people to the proverbial princes of the Old Testament and send their people away every week, telling them to pull up their bootstraps and do their best to be like them. But Brian Chapel talks about how if you carefully go through the biblical story and examine its heroes you'll find out that there's just one. Everyone else is a mess who needs a savior. If we think through the heroes of the Bible, we'll remember just how right chapel is. Abraham was a liar and a coward. Jacob, a cheater and deceiver. David, an adulterer and murderer. Solomon, an idolater and womanizer. Peter betrayed Jesus three times. Not the kinds of princes you want to come and save the day when duty calls. The key phrase of Psalm 146:4: Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, is in whom there is no salvation. The Psalms, some of you may know, back in Psalm 8, the Psalms make room for putting our trust in the Son of Man, who came to save us from ourselves. Acts 4.12 says of another son of man, Jesus Christ, that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Will you acknowledge that you need to turn to a prince who actually can save you? Jesus Christ came to do it. Put your trust in him. We need to stop turning to social media or film or whatever ways we fall into doing verse 3 in our lives. Seeking salvation and putting our trust in influential people who can never save us from our biggest problem. And rather, fulfill our true purpose in life by praising the Lord as long as we live, because he alone can save. Second, praise the Lord as long as you live, says the psalmist in verses 5 to 9, because he is always trustworthy. As I was thinking about praise and what it is, and what it looks like in our day-to-day lives... I came to realize that praise is equal part celebration of what God has done and equal part anticipation of what he's coming to do. Praising God by celebrating what he's already done in the past is what our trust is based on. We trust him because he's proven worthy of our praise time and time again. And we also praise God through anticipating what he's coming to do in the future, which is how our trust is expressed in real time. We're told in verse 6 that the Lord our God keeps faith forever. Another translation puts it, he remains faithful all the time. He's always trustworthy. And in the rest of the psalm, we're given a number of pictures of God's intervention in the world in order to gather the facts surrounding the trustworthiness of our God. It gives us divine data upon which to build our trust in God. Contrary to popular opinion, trusting God is not a matter of blind faith. Psalm 146 exists that we might have the resources that we need to praise him as long as we live. When I was a kid, you could get these things. Uh, I actually had a couple of them throughout my time as, as, a, as a childhood Packers fan. Uh, you could get these things called fat heads. You guys ever seen these things, fat heads? They're basically giant stickers that you could stick on your man cave or your, or your bedroom wall of, uh, that were life-size pictures of athletes and I was surprised to find out that you could actually still get a fathead today and uh, they've expanded their, their portfolio a little bit and you can get a fathead of Loki or Baby Yoda or whatever it is that you might like. And in Psalm 146, we're presented not with fat heads of athletes or fictional characters from the Marvel Universe, but with various life-size pictures of God's character, eye-opening depictions of his faithful intervention of the world. You can see them for yourself. In verse 6, we're given a picture of God, the creator. In verse 7, we're given a picture of God, the judge, not so much a judge who brings retribution, but a judge who brings protection. Not so much a punitive judge against the wicked in that verse, we'll get that later, but a protective judge against the weak. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. At the end of verse 7, he's God the liberator. God sets the prisoners free. And the psalmist doesn't stop there. He puts biblical fathead next to biblical fathead on the walls of history through the words of scripture that we might see the wonder and might of God. In verse 8, he's God the healer. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. In verse 9, he's lover. He's protector of widow and orphan. He's the destroyer of the wicked. At the end of verse 6, the psalmist tells us that God keeps faith forever. In verses 7 to 9, he shows us. In this psalm, show and tell, we're being called to praise the Lord as long as we live because he is always trustworthy. What are the things in your life that make it hard for you to trust in a completely trustworthy God? Perhaps it could be loneliness and the unfulfilled desires for love, or failure in your career, or various kinds of suffering in your family, or the kinds that you see unfolding on a daily basis throughout the world. What narratives in our culture seem to resonate more with your feelings than the redemptive narrative in scripture? We need to consider those things and look deeply Into the picture that we find here of who God is. What might change if we believed, if we took hold of the picture that we see here in Psalm 146. I said a few moments ago that praise is both celebrating what God has done in the past and anticipating what God is coming to do in the future. And the more and more I thought about it, the more and more I pondered verses 5 to 9, the more and more I realized that the person of Jesus Christ is where both aspects of praise come together. Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of each and every picture of God that we find in these verses. Jesus Christ is the ultimate reason why we praise the Lord as long as we live, because he is the ultimate expression of the trustworthiness of God. Paul tells us in Colossians 1 that Jesus Christ is the ultimate, verse 6, creator. We're told in verse 7 that the Lord executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. We flip open the Gospel of Mark, and we see Jesus gently sitting down thousands of helpless and desperate people to feed them with a single loaf of bread. We're told in verse 8 that the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And we open up the Gospel of John. And we see Jesus spit in some mud, wipe it in the eyes of a man born blind, send him down to a river, and he comes back seen. And again, in verse 8, we're told that the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. Another translation has it, he raises them up. We're told that the Lord loves the righteous. And two chapters later in the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus wept because of how much he loved his friend Lazarus who fell down dead four days before. Jesus isn't like the verse 3 son of man in whom there is no salvation because his love and his tears led him to call Lazarus out of the tomb. He lifted up his friend who was bowed down in death. Jesus proved time and time again that the Lord keeps faith forever. And so, as we gather to praise Him for all that He's accomplished for us in the past, we can trust Him to come back and make all things new in the future. In verse 8, we're told that the Lord Jesus Christ loves the righteous. And we have to understand that it's Jesus' perfect example. Of watching over the sojourner by becoming one himself that thrills us and motivates us into becoming the verse 8 righteous person that we were created to be. One commentator says that the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And I love, every time I come to this church, how evident it is that you are willing to disadvantage yourselves for the disadvantaged. We prayed for the hungry this morning, which points me to the one, the one Jesus Christ, who disadvantaged himself in the ultimate way to advantage others which is the basis for our own pursuit of this kind of righteousness. James tells us that religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And I think our challenge today, because of maybe where we place God in our thoughts or the objects that we take hold of in our moment-to-moment heart trust, think because of these factors, our challenge today is whether or not our lives look anything different from the world at all. But they have to, because the Lord loves the righteous. Many of us here today have time and time again failed to take hold of verse 3's warning for themselves. I know I have. We know there's no salvation in the princes we find ourselves trusting in. But we turn to them time and time again. Because we know deep down that we have to worship something. We have to throw ourselves in devotion to something greater than us. In fact, David Foster Wallace says so in the rest of his quote that I shared with you earlier. He says, The compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much everything else will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Don't put your trust in princes. These influential objects, says the psalmist, with Wallace. Because in them there is no salvation. But instead, praise the Lord as long as you live, because the Son of Man, whose breath did once depart from him, verse 4, and entered into the heart of the earth, is still alive. Proving in his resurrection that he can save. And he will come again to prove just how faithful God is, to save the righteous, to destroy the wicked. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And finally, verse 10, we praise God as long as we live because he will reign forever. Here the psalmist dips his brush in the most contrasting of colors. Here he contrasts the Lord who reigns forever most dramatically with the prince from verse 3, whose plans perish in the dust. There is no salvation in princes, in influential people who will one day die. But, verse 10, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Here, Zion is used for the people of God throughout the ages. Whoever, verse 5, takes hold of the God of Jacob as their help, Whoever makes the Lord their God, their hope, will forever be one of God's holy people. Zion is a people who always have a king in whom to put their trust. A people who will always have a God to praise throughout all generations. A God who proved in Jesus Christ that not even death can ever stop him from reigning on his throne. And let me ask you, what thought is there What better thought is there than the one we find here in verse 10? To help you live out your purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Because in order to enjoy God and glorify him forever, he has to be the kind of king who will reign forever. Throughout the New Testament, we're told to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, which is at least in part what worship is. And we're told that the only reason to do so is because that's where Christ is. The one who's going to come again. Christ, who is your life. He's going to appear. And when he does, you also will appear with him in glory. So start setting your minds on him. We're told not to look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Why? Because the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This world, like the grass, is fading away. The Lord and his word, they will endure forever. Which can only be true if we worship an eternally reigning God. Jesus teaches us not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but instead to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. Why? For where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. We are creatures who praise the things that we most prize. What are your most prized possessions? It's worth examining. Because those will end up being the things that you spend your time praising. Where does the God we're confronted with here in the Bible find himself in the vault that we call our heart? Psalm 146 is making the case that we should only praise the one that can save us completely because he's going to be reigning eternally. Psalm 146 is an invitation to examine what we worship. It's a call to question whether we're those children wallowing in the mud pies or for those who not only know about the holiday at sea, but book our ticket and get on the plane. I wonder if you'd take time this afternoon and throughout this week to talk with others in the church or people in your friend groups about whether your life is filled with the kind of worship that eats you alive or the kind that helps you fulfill the purpose for which you were made. If you take time this afternoon and throughout this week to put the image of the Son of Man, the only one in whom there is salvation, on the wall of your mind and your heart. Let the picture of the God you find here thrill you into becoming the beloved righteous person that we meet at the end of verse 8. Because then you truly will be the kind of person who praises God as long as you live. Because he alone can save. He is completely trustworthy. And he will reign forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray by your spirit that you would give us the resources to take hold of this son of man the son of man who for a little while was made lower than the angels, the one who bore a cross for us that we might live. I pray that you would help us to turn away from all of the objects of our fascination, all of the false sources of trust, all of the kings that take hold of our lives and our time, and turn us desperately to the one who can save, that our other loves might be reordered and put in their righteous place, in their rightful place. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to praise you with every breath. Praise you all the time.
0: So I pray that you would help us to do this. In Jesus' name. Amen.